0: The Irish Diaspora is said to be somewhere between 30 to 75 million people around the globe who claim connection to this small island on the edge of the western seaboard, surrounded by sea and ocean. Irish Voices Conversations with the Irish Diaspora talks to some of those people and hears the story of many from that diaspora. One of those joins us now, originally from Dublin, now living in the Big Apple.
1: Niall O'Leary from Dublin, Ireland, now residing in New York City, USA.
0: You're a man who jumps across the Atlantic as often as as Blairio uh, jumped across the channel in planes. Well, actually, he only did it once or twice. But you did this on a fairly regular basis, uh, Niall. Uh, Your roots are Dublin. Tell me your roots, where where, uh, Niall O'Leary comes from.
1: So I was born in Dublin. But um, my parents are from actually Kerry. My father and my mother, the Limerick Kerry border. So I've country blood in my veins, and not not a bad yeah, thing I've never at all. Dublin. Yeah.
0: So, so only so a first generation dub then. I guess so. Yeah, that's
1: what you'd call it. Yeah. Well, what was life like for you uh, now growing up? Well, I grew up in the leafy suburbs in Dublin, and I had a lovely time. Myself and my sister, who's a year older than me, um, we went through different phases of fighting each other and hugging each other, and fighting over the TV remote, and now we talk a few times a week, a and that's great.
0: that's good. And, and a childhood full with culture, because you're a very cultured, Irish-cultured man.
1: Yeah, you know, I have my mother to blame for that, because she used to do the Irish dancing when she was young, and um, she also got um, myself and my sister into the dancing and into the accordion lessons as well. And so um, from a young age, I was participating in things we didn't call it Irish dancing or up; we called it dancing, and yeah. so um, it wasn't it wasn't like the typical American experience where you're doing something to i suppose state your culture or to keep a connection in Ireland um you just did it anyway, and you didn't really think about any higher purpose, but you just wanted to do something and get good at it, I suppose you know, and it was just enjoyable like going to dancing classes with the groups of people and the accordion classes um it was, I suppose it was different because it was just myself and my sister. And um, we didn't take the accordion maybe as seriously as the dancing. But still, um, I suppose I did, the accordion, I really got into it um, when I started, I suppose, playing sessions, you know. And um, But the dancing I've been doing continuously um, since I was in my early single digits. And like I never thought really, I suppose, going up that I would make a career. Of it. But, but like, you know, I have two degrees in architecture from University College Dublin and I have my own architectural practice here in New York. But I spend a lot of time dancing, I would
0: have to say, yeah. There, There's my phone call. Uh, switch off all phones when you're about to go into interviews. It's the first rule, isn't it? And I just... Uh, it's I'm, an emergency. Yeah, <laughs> it's an emergency that I that I switch it off, that's for sure. All right. So, okay. um, you, 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 you're you at an early age as, as a boy. Uh, that's not completely the norm for, for Irish dancing. I mean, you would have been in the minority.
1: Yeah, and so... Um, For years, I suppose, the ideas of boys dancing has been kind of scorned at in a way. And um, this is, you'd say, um, only in the last few hundred years. It was definitely um, a thing before. And um, I did an advertising campaign for my dancing school there a couple of years ago um, in in live, uh, putting up signs, basically posters, and then we did it on the Internet. And if you look at the big print, it said, real men do Irish dance. I think it was, yeah, real men, real men, Irish dance. That's what it said. And then if you read the small print in between, it was real men send their sons to Irish dance classes. (laughs) And so we hit a raw nerve with some people. And um, definitely, I mean, I'll say it straight out. um, You know, very often, like, I suppose you'd say uneducated people think, Oh, if my son becomes a dancer, he'll end up gay. Number one, um it's a ridiculous thing to say. And number two is if there was going to be anything wrong with that. So, uh, I, 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 yes, it's,
0: a double, it's like a double, on t- a double attack on Tondra, Yeah, isn't it? like,
1: it's the most outrageous thing. And like definitely that still exists where there's families where they have like maybe three girls and a boy and the three girls dance and the boy doesn't. But I must say there's plenty of cases I've come across where the three girls have, let's say, a younger brother and they just drag him along anyway. And he ends up like a brilliant dancer, much better than any of the girls. So it's funny... Like, you can never tell, really. And, like, so... um well, you know, we, might, we might
0: get into that debate later on, who, who's, yep. who are better dancers, the girls or the boys, in Irish dancing terms. But I want to take you even further back, because I'm sure at this stage you know the ins and outs of the history of, of Irish dance. I mean, uh, popular belief would, would, would tell you it goes back for thousands of years, but it's not quite as old as that, is it?
1: Well, you know, um there were three words, apparently, to describe... Um, dancing in, in the Irish language like centuries ago. And so n- nobody knows what the dancing looks like, but we do know that people in Ireland did dance. And unfortunately, um, whether it was like with the, the round towers being burned down or whatever it was, that all the historical records were lost. And not that you could accurately document dancing in written form anyway, but um, we really don't know. But, but we know that there are certain dances that are hundreds of years old and um, they've been kept up um, you'd say some of them preserved continuously some of them have been brought back and the latest style of Irish dancing definitely uh, would be a much more athletic endeavor than any kind of dancing that was done in Ireland 100 years ago it was definitely much closer to the floor and um, there wasn't all this leaping and high kicking that you see nowadays and so it's become a sport uh, as well as an art form clearly
0: and what what are the, the some of the, some of the, um, the, the the things that you you would know and recognize when you look at Irish dancing as opposed to others the, the classic is that you see lots of movement of feet and very little physical movement of the arms particularly they they're by your side or they're very restricted what what's the history of that i mean i've heard a few stories but i, I never quite believe them
1: Yeah, so the the still arms is still a thing for Irish dance competition. If you move your hands or your arms, then um, you're not going to win that particular day. And so there are various different, you'd say, urban myths and different stories um, down through the years. And some people have been, you'd say, propagating these stories because they either slag off the Catholic Church or the British or um, some other group they don't like. But um the reality is, as told to me by Professor Mick Maloney, the head of the band The Greenfields America, who I perform at, basically he said that um, it was something it was to do with um, the Victorian era in Ireland, where like there were certain norms that were adopted in Ireland about how you hold yourself, and deportment was really important, and to stand up straight and to be able to walk tall, and the idea of Like keeping your arms still was kind of a test in the Victorian times of, you know, being able to look good. And um, I suppose that it was kind of a class thing, maybe. But that's basically that the the, the still arms is nothing to do with the British Army or the Catholic Church, that it's more from the Victorian, um, you'd say, Culture.
0: A, st- a stiffness almost of, uh, in that particular culture. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what about the, the, the uh, arrival of, of, of Scots-Irish uh, to, to these shores? How did that affect Irish dancing or how is it now? Is there a relationship, a direct relationship between the two?
1: Well, it's interesting now that um, I was told by the late Peter Smith, uh, one of the most well-known dancing teachers in the 20th century in um, the United States, that he he was a participant in a a conference that I just mentioned Mick Maloney, a conference that Mick Maloney organized in, I believe, 2005 at uh, NYU, called Close to the Floor, ironically, which was describing kind of, you'd say, the early days of Irish dancing. But um, Peter Smith came up with a statement, which I hadn't heard before, that the northern style of Irish dance came in in the United States in 1955. And so um, I actually went and looked up then to see what exactly went on. And really... Um, It appears that the the Southern style or the Kerry style, as it was known as, because a lot of dancing teachers had come over from County Kerry. um, And I suppose uh, Jerry Mononau and Jerry Mulvihill, who only died maybe in the last 10, 12 years, they were two names that people might recognize. And um, the Kerry style was fast and furious. The music was faster and um, it was a little uh, less refined in terms of style. And so um, the Northern style, I guess, was more precise And uh, so that has kind of, you'd say, taken over um, in the Irish dancing world. And years ago, you could tell where someone was from based on their style of dancing or if they were dancing or performing certain moves. And now you can't tell anymore with the advent of the Internet and particularly now with the advent of Instagram and other video sharing platforms that um, everyone's copying everyone else. And there's no telling where somebody is from. And there's some amazing dancers Um, from, I suppose you'd say, far-flown places like Australia, New Zealand, and even countries where they don't even speak English. And um, I I myself teach in Mexico, and there's some really great young dancers coming up from Mexico, from a number of different dance schools now. There's about seven different Irish dance schools in um, the United States of Mexico, and it's very exciting. But yeah, like, so um, the Southern style, I guess, was kind of, um, a lot of people who were teaching the Southern style uh, switched then to the Northern style because it was winning, and they were like, we need to do this new thing because um, that's what everyone's doing now. If we want to win, if we Every, want to keep our dancers. Everything gravitates
0: to the north eventually. I mean, I don't need to gravitate. No, no, I'm, I'm already here. i no
1: name in the Irish dancing world, John Colnan If he was here today, he'd give you a slap on the head. <laughs> and um, John Colnan has proudly interrupted various different events to state that all the traditional set dances that are currently performed um, in Irish dance, some which were as I say, brought back, some which we're taught continuously are all from Cork.
0: And of course, of course, set dancing, and another uh, a string to that bow when you do it collectively rather than just as an individual. It's a, yeah. I, I love it. I have to say it really is something
1: Absolutely. something to behold. Yeah, it's funny, like what I've been talking about dancing now so far, um, I made a reference to Toast to the Floor, which would be, I suppose, a reference to maybe Shandos dancing or old style step dancing, which would be from, I suppose, the mid 20th century but um, the Kaylee dancing and set dancing is a whole other thing, really. And it's funny how the worlds have kind of um, the, the world of set dancing and step dancing are completely different worlds. Yet a lot of set dancers, certainly that I've met um, in Dublin and in New York, are former step dancers who basically said, you know, now we do set dancing. And I suppose like it's easier maybe um, to do the kind of group dancing. It's not it's, I wouldn't say it's as it's, it's um no less cardiovascularly demanding. It's very demanding if you're dancing a load of dances in three or four hours. But um, the fact you're not lifting your legs as much, maybe it's not as demanding on the leg muscles. But yeah, like Kaylee dancing and set dancing has been on pause uh, for over a year. And I'm sure now that um, when finally times are right to bring back the Kaylee dancing and set dancing... I'd say there will be a bit of a revival because people definitely miss it.
0: Well, let me get back to your own involvement uh, from those early days. Uh, were you into the competitions early
1: and, and how successful were you? That yeah, I was lucky that I won an All-Ireland Championship. Lucky. Um, You're just lucky. Just, just lucky. Well, I was 11. I was just, was I, yeah, I just turned 11 years of age, I think. And, um, or was I 10? I can't remember. I was 10 or 11. And um, so, and I was on, I actually danced on the main evening news uh, that night. Uh, the nine o'clock news on RTE. So um, it was great. Like, I mean, I just really enjoyed it. And the fact, I have to say, like, uh, without sounding pompous, the fact that I was good at it, I suppose I was thinking, you know, I better keep this up. And I was very fortunate in school as well that, like, because I was winning, I kind of um, was left alone in a sense, you know, whereas I feel maybe I would have been beaten up if I hadn't been winning because I was the only guy <laughs> doing Irish dancing. And there was one, one brother. Now, I went to um College which was a famous rugby is a famous rugby school, and there was a, a priest there, a brother called Brother Luke, and he would get me to perform for different classes during religion class, and then he'd give me an orange. My first professional gig was dancing for St Paul's <laughs> class when I was about um, eight or nine, and Brother Luke gave me an orange. Were, were so, you
0: dancing the Northern style? You could have been called an orange man it, it, it it at oh, okay, an event. Okay. But thank
1: you for giving me the opportunity to clarify. <laughs> No, <laughs> so, you know there was some great dancing done in the Orange Halls, actually in the north. Um, so we're not going to say anything negative about the Orange Halls. They actually promoted the Irish dancing as well, and it it wasn't clearly, um, I suppose, something that was seen as divisive um, when they were doing it in the Orange Halls. You know, and there was a lot of people um, in the north, Belfast, and the surrounding towns around Belfast, who produced some great dancers who are still around um, today. So, absolutely. But, Indeed, you know, it's,
0: like, it's a bit like the Irish language. Um, it's not an ownership thing, um, and, and yes. no one, no one should uh, should begin to or start absolutely. to to think that they do. So, yes. so you, you, you're you're an all Ireland medalist. Does that does that transfer to be a world medalist
1: or were well, the world all world championships? I won the Dublin Leinster all Ireland world championships then when I was twenty one. Wow. And so, um, yeah, like I suppose just maybe the sense of achievement um, didn't hit me as much at the time. But there's, there was a great satisfaction in winning. And um, I just really enjoy, I enjoy performing. Um, and I definitely did enjoy competing, I have to say, yeah. But it was about, you know, competing is all really about dancing your best. It's not about beating other people. And I particularly reinforce that point to my students nowadays, that, um, you know, you try and do the best you can at any given moment. And you prepare for that obviously that's what you're
0: practicing for you know so we're we're, we're talking about the dancing career we'll, we'll look to your um, architectural roots as well because um we'll get to those in a moment or two we give people a chance to choose a, a few songs through the course of the of the interview as it were uh, and you've chosen um your first one I mean, you can choose these in whatever order you like whichever you feel is most appropriate but what are you going to go for your number one choice would you say
1: well the first one i mentioned to you was uh, summer in dublin And um, obviously uh, the the composer sadly passed away now in the last few months or the last three or four months, uh, Liam Riley. And um, I suppose Summer in Dublin became an iconic song. And everyone remembers the first line, I remember that Summer in Dublin. And it's like the rest of the lyrics are, I don't know, almost inconsequential because everyone has their own memories of Summer in Dublin. So I would say the song um, evokes like, a different memory for everyone whereas, whereas there'd be other songs where you'd be hanging on every word you know but um, there's certainly things in the, the the song that I wouldn't relate to at all but there's other things I would you know and um, I just think the idea of summer in Dublin when you're in America especially it's a lovely idea and you might only be talking about one day really if you're talk if you, if you bring the weather into it but no seriously I mean I've great memories childhood memories and obviously then as I grew up um, great memories of Spending summers in Dublin doing loads of different things, being busy and also just not being busy just hanging out in the garden and picking daisies and playing with my sister and uh, having salads on the, on the grass in the front garden like we just had a great time you know
0: Take me away from the city and leave me to where I can be on my own I wanted to see you and now that I have. I just wanna be left alone We threatened to talk about your um, academic side um, because there seems to have been quite a one and you chose,
1: by the sound of it, architecture. What w- what made that choice? Well, you know, I was always interested in um, building design and I was fascinated by, I suppose, the possibilities of design and just the different, different permutations. And when I was like in high school, as you'd call it here, secondary school, like I had, I remember I had a succession of geography books where, like, there was like you know diagrams of layouts of like farmyards and stuff, and I turned them all into like two hundred bedroom hotels. I was drawing furiously in these books over these, um, and like you know the way you, you your parents would be hoping that you could like sell the books for something secondhand. All my books had like diagrams of hotels and convention centers and different things drawn over like farmyards and stuff. So um, I had a great time drawing and designing. And I suppose I was just into that from my teens, certainly. And I was, into, I was into cars, I would say, when I was single digit. Then I got into soccer and then I got into design after that. And, and did you play soccer at the time? I played a little soccer, but um, I had an experience once where I was, I guess I was kind of on the periphery of the squad for um, Black Rock College soccer team, which, you know, they did the odd thing, but they were completely overshadowed by the rugby team. But there was one particular day that there was a guy who was really a rugby fullback and the ball came up the field and he kicked the soccer ball two fields over. And the coach, who was also my chemistry teacher, said to him, I like your style. And that was the end of my soccer career. I was like, if that if he likes that, like I was into flicking the ball running with the ball, leaping over people, doing all my Irish dancing moves on the soccer field. And everyone knew, like, they were like, oh, look, there he goes. And somebody come in to tackle me, I just leap over them and kick the ball ahead. And I was great at flicking the ball and subtle touches like that. And when the coach said that to that guy, I was like, first of all, he should have been playing rugby. And that has nothing to do with soccer, kicking the ball, who feels over, and I quit.
0: And, and what, I said, about, what, what about the, the potential threat to those legs? I mean, the all-important dancing legs.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I have to say now, when I came over to New York, um, I was in a bar one night playing music and somebody said to me, you know, we're starting a soccer team, you should sign up for it. And I was like, wow, I'm really interested. And somebody at the bar said, um, you know, they said, if you start playing soccer over here, they said to me, the Croatians would break your legs. And um, I've nothing against Croatia and I never tried it to find out if that was true or not. But I took the guy's advice. I was like, I can't afford to be breaking my legs and performing and teaching Irish dancing. And um, I didn't want to take a chance, for you, But so, so, so into architecture
0: and, and how yeah. successful. You say you have two degrees in architecture. She so she so took it pretty seriously.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I actually worked in Dublin uh, for a firm called Dunfield-Connor-Baird, and we were the architects for the remodelling of the GPO on O'Connell Street. And controversially, um, the Coochollin statue got moved from the centre of the GPO to the front window. And we brought in loads of light... there was like kind of um, you'd say opaque glass in the windows and it hadn't even been cleaned and we got in this lovely clear glass and we got a new floor new bright floor and um, just did a lovely redesign which I think was very tasteful so I was lucky that I got that kind of experience but I also was very into modern architecture and I got to work on some like house projects and different urban infill projects in Dublin where um, I got good experience at figuring things out design-wise, you know. And then when I came over here to New York, then I worked for a couple of different firms before starting my own practice. And um, lucky again, I've got to perform, I've got to perform, I've got to um, work on random different projects around the city and in the hinterland as well, in in Queens and Brooklyn and um, Long Island and places, you know. So, so yeah, like I'm always looking for people who are interested in good design and um, I'm really focused on the design part of it. There's other architects... Who like you know they do all the kind of like um, building department filing is their main thing I do that as well but like we focus on the design really so you so you're still doing a certain amount of that then yes absolutely yeah so maybe not as um, maybe not as many hours per week as my professional architectural colleagues but um, yeah we definitely um, are always looking for new. Opportunities to do some design work around New York City. Definitely. yeah.
0: So, when did the the, the dancing move from just uh, performing uh, to becoming um, someone to to help others?
1: Yeah, I did a little teaching in Ireland, and it was really just people who asked me to teach. And I suppose my first big project in Ireland as a dancing teacher was um, I got this idea. I was teaching a little dancing in UCD, and um, in University College Dublin, and I got the idea about putting together a team for the World Irish Dancing Championships. Which were actually in the college campus um, in 1996, and so I put together what became the first ever multinational Irish dancing team. And we had a dancer in the team, uh, Puna Gasanelwe from Botswana, who's now actually working. She's a doctor working for the Botswana government, and she represents Botswana at the World Health Organization meetings. And so we'd random different people um, in the team from all over the world. And we got a bit of notoriety for that, I have to say. And then when I came over to America then, um, I was teaching a little bit evenings and weekends. And um, I suppose when I started my own architectural practice then, uh, it expanded a bit because I had more time in the schedule for it, you know. And I've had a great team over the years um, of people helping me with the teaching. And we've a great group of dancers who perform as well. So it's very exciting. We have a number of dancers now of all ages, children, um, teenagers and adults, who are all getting really good. And in the pandemic, especially, it's a huge challenge um, to try and find space to practice. And it's hard to keep the motivation going when you're not in a group class with other people, which we haven't been able to do in New York City.
0: But having having said that now, I have to say, I mean, my limited experience of Irish dancing, but a a limited experience of, of seeing such stuff online over the the covid period that you seem to be at the forefront of pushing uh to do stuff online when others were um a little bit uh, a little bit intimidated by the whole idea and you ran with it very quickly that, that that would be my interpretation were you at the forefront or were you just coming behind or were you way behind in, in, in your i would say
1: um i wouldn't be certainly the only one but there's a lot of people who've been um, figuring out uh, what to do and the best way to do it you know and so we started almost straight away doing video classes. Um, and like I suppose we were lucky that we got we got the opportunities through the Irish Arts Centre uh, primarily and with other groups to do some performances online where we were specifically asked to do things. And then we did a project ourselves um, in October of last year and we got a brilliant uh, photographer and videographer, Jimmy Higgins, who's from Dublin but based here in New York for many years. And he would normally be photographing events in the Irish community every night of the week, which, of course, he hasn't been doing for a year. But in October... I I
0: think, did he used to run an Irish pub guide?
1: um, The same guy, exactly. I met met him a few years in New York City. Yeah, great guy. And um, takes great photographs and puts everyone at ease. And, like, everyone looks good in the photographs because he's just a funny guy and he gets you in a mood. If you were in a bad mood before he showed up, then you look great in the photograph because he made you laugh. But anyway, we did this video project and he put together an amazing video. And it's like... trailer for a movie it's 59 seconds long and because we wanted to to put it up on certain platforms where you can only do one minute videos and like it's like um, every scene in the movie is like two or three seconds so it's like everyone who's watched it they're like i need to watch it again i think i missed something so it was great and so there was random things like that that we did um to keep people engaged and just to keep ourselves amused really and so just,
0: just to give a visual picture, uh, create the visual without the visual, because uh, people can find it online, of course. But uh, from memory, um, if it doesn't start and it certainly uh, has a subway section and then it yeah. moves to, to shots on Brooklyn Bridge, I'm suspecting. Right. And, then, yeah. and then where does it go after that?
1: Um, well, it was, I think, yeah, we, we started off um, in the subway. Then we went to the bridge. And then the last shot was actually the dancers dancing back back to Manhattan, you know. So it kind of symbolised, I suppose, the, the reopening of Manhattan, that we're coming back, you know. That was the idea.
0: Yeah, very, very powerful, very powerful. Um, uh, enjoyed it, uh, Matt So we'll, we'll try and play it. Uh, we'll, we'll play the soundtrack of it. Uh, that's what we'll do because uh, this being a podcast and being radio, uh, one of the reasons it's being radio. Uh, I have the perfect face for radio, Nile. So you can, you can just, <laughs> just just bear with me on that on that particular front. So yeah, that
1: yeah. you have a really expensive now,
0: um, like you don't have to show off. Ah, oh, thank you. So uh, back to this idea of teaching, Um, was that a big challenge for you when you did move into it or did you just fall at your feet, as it were?
1: I would say that um, the biggest challenge in teaching is just um, to keep everyone happy, you know. And the thing is that you have to obviously keep challenging dancers. There's no point just like, you know, running the warm-up and running the steps and you're all great. Everyone go home and practice. That doesn't work. And so we keep coming up with new moves, new combinations and um, new choreography to keep people challenged. And, you know, like I think it's running a dancing school versus just showing up to teach are two completely different things. And certainly um, the teaching I found easy, the running the dancing school, I definitely um, had to work harder on that because um, it just like, you know, there's people kind of disappear and you have to keep track of everyone. And um, we've a great group now, but there was times years ago where um, people had just kind of disappear, and um, you'd wonder what happened. And then they'd show up six weeks later. Can we work on what I worked on the last time I was here? <laughs> and I think the first time I said yes, and after that I was like, we've had six weeks at last since you were here. So um, you just have to follow along. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Keep up, keep up with me. So a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of aspiration, a little bit of discipline and all all those things you'd want in a good sense. Is there a competitive side to it too, though, for you that you, you, a goal or two that you have when you, particularly when you recognize someone who has extraordinary talent for want of a better word?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's like, we, we basically challenge everyone to participate in, competitions of which there were many pre-pandemic and it seems that just now in the last couple of weeks there's a lot of um these events are coming back and there's issues with trying to find venues and insurance and stuff but um it's starting to happen now again in a big way on the east coast the southern region and the western region i think um had a better go of it in the last year but uh, the new york metropolitan area has a lot of events happening but we we basically offer these opportunities to our dancers And some of them take them with both hands and some of them you have to kind of persuade them, you know. And there's other ones then who just say, I'm dancing for fun and I'll do the performances, but I don't want to do competition. So we have classes for all kinds, you know, that um, if someone doesn't want to compete, we don't kick them out or force them to do it. We're like, that's great. We'll make you the best dancer you possibly can be. And we've definitely had children over the years who like said to their mother, oh, I don't want to compete. And then the mother brought them to the class, or brought them to a fest to an Irish dancing competition and they ended up in the World Championships, you know. So, like, um, you know, in the case of children, like, you just kind of encourage them and expose them to it. And um, I suppose you say Irish dancing is a little bit like radiation it kind of seeps into your system, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm.
0: uh-huh. it takes time. Uh, there's a glowing look about you. I now understand why. <laughs> <laughs> Make, makes complete sense. We're, we're going to get you to pick another tune. And then I'm going to ask you when this real diaspora journey started. Because uh, we've not We we've been jumping backwards and forwards to some degree across the Atlantic, but want to know yeah. why and how and, and all the rest. Uh, so your next choice, I think, uh, are you going to go for Robbie O'Connell? Tell, tell me know, the story uh-huh. behind that.
1: Yeah, so um, Robbie O'Connell is a long-time um, musical associate of Mick Maloney, who I mentioned, and uh, Robbie O'Connell is also, um, for years, part of the Greenfields of America, and he's come with us to, like, Cuba and um, places far afield, and um, for years he toured around America with Mick Maloney as well, and he's an absolutely gifted songwriter, and this particular song now, I first heard on the radio in Ireland when I was young, Louise Morrissey had a hit with it in Ireland, And there's a lovely version of Sean Keane. Um, Some of you might know Dolores Keane's brother. He's not as famous as Dolores, but um, he's a brilliant singer in his own right. And he's a version of it as well. But um, the version I picked is Robbie O'Connell's original uh, lyrics that he sings himself. And there's, I would say like, whereas the first song I mentioned, it's all about the title. This song is a very humorous look at um, how that you can be in America thinking of home in Ireland but you can be in Ireland thinking of home in America. And I think it perfectly encapsulates the dilemma for most immigrants. Um, You'd say from anywhere to anywhere, that um, on the one hand, like, you feel at home in both places, and on the other hand, you don't feel at home in either place. And there's one particular line in the chorus of this song where um, Robbie O'Connell sings, I'd like to find a way to be two places at one time. And I think if you were to ask a room of emigrants, has anyone ever felt that, everyone would put up their hand. This guy is nodding his head profusely. <laughs> yeah. So it's great to, to encapsulate an idea in a song, I think, is, um, I suppose you say, a great, it's a great tribute to the songwriter to be able to do that. I'd been back home in Ireland just to visit some old friends. But the days had gone by quickly, it was time to leave again. I'd like to find a way to be two places at one time. Easy going back again, to
0: say goodbye. You're listening to Irish Voices, Conversations with the Irish Diaspora. Today we're talking to Niall O'Leary, who was uh, Dublin born and now lives in New York. He's uh, into all sorts of things, architecture among others. He's an Irish dancer of great renown and also an Irish dance teacher. Among other things, he tells us he's a musician. You never know, we might encourage him to sing it. It has been known before. We were talking about Robbie O'Connell. We were talking about Mick Maloney. And every time I hear the letter song, I burst into tears. Can you pass that on to the, those two guys, please? Absolutely. Kill Kelly Ireland. We have to play it on the on on the on the show some night soon, uh, and maybe we'll get through your good offices. We we'll get to talk to either or both of them sometime because they're they're two fascinating characters in themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to your own story though. So when when did America uh, emerge as an opportunity or a, a potential for you to go to, and and why?
1: Right. Well, I was performing in Dublin with a cultist, cultus Aaron known as Kiltus, and um, they have branches all over Ireland and all over the world, in fact. And they invited me in 1993 to participate in a tour of Great Britain in February 93, And then the following fall, they asked me to do a tour of America. And that was my first time in, you'd say, North America. And I made my American stage debut in the Hall and the American Irish Centre in Willis Avenue in Mineola, Long Island. There should be a plaque on the wall. It's not there yet. <laughs> I said to somebody, it should be brass. They're like, no, brass will tarnish. You need to get bronze. Or I, I, anyway. I,
0: I think Martin Donoghue might have got there before you. Martin Martin
1: <laughs> would have been on those tours too, wouldn't he? I'm sure there's room for two plaques on the wall. I'm not clear. <laughs> so anyway, I then I came back from America and I was thinking, wow, that was fascinating. Then 1995, just two years later, I got asked again to do the same two tours. And... Um, Comparing Great Britain to America, I suppose, I, you know, I'd been to England and Scotland before, and but I was fascinated by um, America and, you know, like, I suppose you'd say the whole thing about the land of opportunity that, um, you know, I suppose everyone thinks, oh, I can come to America and let's see what can happen. And so I came over for the summer of 1996 and I
0: stayed. New York or Long Island or whatever it was, close enough to New York, um, I know from my own circumstances, it's a very different place to other parts of the United States. It's a very Irish city in so many ways, numerically and, and historically and all sorts of things. Did that make it easy for you? Or, or, or I wouldn't say too easy, but did it make it easy for you to to, to make that move?
1: Well, yeah, I was, um, I was staying in Long Island for the first three and a half weeks or so. And then um, I got a job through actually meeting an Irish guy, an Irish property developer who put me in touch with a couple of different people and then they put me in touch with more people. So, so you could say that the whole chain of command of me getting an, a, an architectural job at a really cool design firm started by meeting an Irish guy when I was looking for an apartment. And then I, um, I ended up moving into an apartment in Greenwich Village in New York City. And I was hanging out with mostly, I would say, Americans, Canadians, Indians. But um, definitely when I went to the Irish pubs, that's where you kind of make the connections. And I started playing music um, in a, bars a couple of nights a week and, um, yeah, there was one night, um, a guy comes up with a pint of Guinness in his hand and he's like, have you ever heard of the Irish business organization? No, I don't think he was learning his words early. He was talking normally. It was only his first or second pint. And I was like, I've never heard of the Irish business organization. So he invited me along and, um, like another great group of, you'd say Irish businessmen and women. And, um, I ended up as president of it then many years later. And so, um, and I'm still involved in it, uh, very much so like, and so like, There's so many connections you can make here. So, like, I suppose you'd say in a smaller city, like maybe Savannah or somewhere, you would try to get to know all the Irish people in town. In New York City, that mightn't be possible in a lifetime. But I've certainly got to know a lot of people. And um, through the dancing, particularly, and through the performing, there's a lot, and through the teaching, there's a lot of people have, um, you'd say, heard of me in ways that they mightn't have heard of somebody who was just sitting in the back of the pub or something, you know. So I'm lucky in the sense that the dancing has given me a window, um, in a way, and the music. But um, New York City is an amazing place, and there are so many Irish and Irish-Americans here as well. And, um, you know, and I, there's, like, there's definitely people who come over here to be Irish. There's other people who come over here to integrate, and then they ended up um, networking in the Irish community anyway. So um, it's just fascinating, really.
0: So would you say now, uh, as compared to then, that things have changed for for somebody just literally off the boat or the plane, that it's more difficult or is it exactly the same, do you think, when when an Irish person comes to the city?
1: Well, it's more difficult in the sense that um, there are probably less Irish people than there used to be. There are less native Irish in New York City, but it's way easier um, with the advent of, not just the internet, but social media. And the fact that you can make so many connections in advance, whereas years ago, you'd be depending on expensive phone calls and writing letters that might be out of date by the time they arrived. And nowadays, like, there's plenty of people who, like, they contact people well in advance. I'm thinking of coming to America. They introduce them to people. And it's like they're nearly all sorted before they show up at all, you know. And so, like, there's other people who maybe wouldn't be as fortunate as that. But... There is the possibility um, with social media that you can connect with so many people very quickly. And if you're lucky, people will introduce you to the right people that you need to get to know to do whatever you want to do. So I think in that sense, it's easier. Historically,
0: um, and it probably still exists, there are a number of people uh, on the books who are not on the books. I'm alluding to the whole idea of of, of many people who are uh, unrecognized um, officially in America uh, particularly the Irish don't goodness knows what the numbers are they talk about 11 million people uh, who are potentially there for citizenship if it's if it's offered in the current administration and otherwise I mean that was part of the big part of of Irish American life uh, for so long you've uh, legitimized I'm not here to investigate your past or otherwise uh, but is that still is it still running like an undercurrent in 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 life for for the Irish in particular would
1: you say Oh, it definitely is. I'm lucky that I'm a permanent resident of the United States. But there's plenty others have not had the opportunity to do that. And I suppose you'd say there was always the possibility of marrying somebody. And um, many people ended up marrying people they didn't even like um, so that they could stay in America. But I suppose, you know, coming from a country where marriage was for life years ago from, you know, until relatively recently, um, the idea of divorce was not even allowed in Ireland and you had to go to the Seychelles, like um, former Minister Rory Quinn, to get a divorce if you wanted to do that. And so um, nowadays, like, I guess the younger people coming over from Ireland, um, they don't see marriage as such a permanent thing. And so maybe it's easier to um, come to arrangements. But still, it's not ideal, you know. And um, there's always a way uh, for people to figure it out. But um, it can be very difficult. And I suppose, you know, there's other countries that appear more welcoming in terms of their immigration policies. But um, all that has been thrown up in the air at the moment with the, the COVID, obviously. And um, is any country perceived as welcoming at the moment? I don't think so, you know. Well, so- when, when you say
0: uh, unwelcome, um, there's a difference in, in 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 many parts of the States, to many different races, particularly, um, well, I don't want to go down the routes of, of particular races, but the point might be that some um, groups of people are harangued uh, more for for being in this illegal situation, for want of a better word. Do the Irish get away later, Do you think? Um, what's your experience of hearing for others say in New York, and does it differ in different uh, states, as it were?
1: Yeah, no, there doesn't seem to be a policy in New York of pursuing illegal immigrants, whereas maybe um, maybe there was in other states, definitely. But um, I think like that. Um, you know, it's it's a very challenging situation to be somewhere illegally because if you need to go home, let's say if you have a bereavement or something, then you have to make a very difficult choice. Do you go home or and not be able to come back, or do you kind of stay and have to cope like you'd say by yourself almost? And so like that is probably the worst situation for an illegal immigrant to be in. And um as I say, there's plenty of people have tried to figure out a way of doing it, but I think what I was referring to in terms of unwelcoming is the number of hoops that you have to jump through and the amount of money you have to pay um, to become, even if you're doing it the correct way. If you're going from a temporary worker visa to a permanent um, resident visa, the amount of hoops you have to jump through is unbelievable. But I was just um, listening to Irish radio there last year where they were saying in Ireland it's just as bad almost like the like emigrants are paying thousands of euros to just to stay in Ireland. So, like, I'm not an expert on the whole matter, but you'd imagine, like, the concepts that we have in the EU of freedom of movement, like, um, you'd imagine that concept could be expanded um, to other places as well. It, it, it's a continuing debate, isn't? It? As I say, it, it,
0: yeah. it's it's up in the air with this president, uh, president and present uh, administration, and and still no answers coming, uh, even in the short term. But but here here's hoping. Uh, equally important uh, now, uh, and it's harder. It's harder. I think it might be harder, not harder for you, but it's a different experience of moving to New York where there's so many Irish. Did you feel that you were treated differently, good or bad, being Irish? And what's what's your perception of that among the Irish, among the American community, ex uh, Irish community, as it were?
1: Oh, I think um, like we're lucky to be Irish. I would have to say, and um, there's always a welcome for Irish people. Just like there's a welcome on the mass when the Americans come to <laughs> Ireland. I think Irish people are very welcome. Um, is my experience anyway, and um, any kind of racism or anything that happened uh, years ago um, I have certainly not experienced that and in I think in the modern world that um, we're lucky that um, there's really very little racism towards Irish people there may be some lingering um, feelings you would say with certain people but um, overall I would say that um, Irish people are made to feel very welcome and we're lucky the fact that um, you know that I suppose Ireland has exported a lot of great talent Um, in generations before us and I would say in my own case the fact that um, Riverdance was such a successful worldwide uh, show um, I've been in places as I mentioned earlier like Cuba where um, I was walking down the street in Havana, Cuba wearing some kind of a shirt that had Ireland on it and some guy stops me and he's like you're from Ireland? And I'm like yeah and he's like Riverdance you know and I actually started dancing on the street for him, but um, like it's amazing how like culture has opened doors, I think, for Irish people. And there's people who mightn't even have seen Riverdance and they're benefiting from the fact that it was all over the world. And it created such a feel-good factor. And there's so many dancing teachers like myself who've left Ireland to go uh, teach and perform overseas. And the fact that Riverdance, you'd say, happened has made it so much more successful in terms of like on-the-ground Having dancing students and running dancing schools, putting on shows like before Riverdance, you would say that um, St. Patrick's Day was the performing season. And I was lucky, I was performing with the Rory O'Connor dancers um, every summer from the age of 15. And you, we did a lot of shows year round, and I was the exception in that sense in that most Irish dancing groups in Ireland only perform around St. Patrick's Day. And you'd say the same for the rest of the world. But since Riverdance, there's a huge demand. Uh, we, do, we have a professional dance group. We do corporate entertainment all year round. And um, there's a great demand for top-class Irish dancing, as well as just the local dancing schools coming in and doing performances, which we do a lot of performances. And New York City, we're very fortunate that we get to do a lot of, of shows for non-Irish communities. And that's really exciting as well. When you look at especially children's faces who've never seen Irish dancing before... Um, it's just fascinating when they see what we're doing because it's just so unusual and unique. There, there was a
0: remarkable uh, video because this is this is the age when when video and, and and TikTok and all the rest of it can do the job that that, that a million of us couldn't even begin to think. to to get to touch young people in particular and and enthuse them. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of, uh, you might even know her name, I don't, uh, off the top of my head, the uh, African-American who decided that she wanted to Irish dance, having seen it somewhere else, and it was a storm. Millions of people watched her enthuse others.
1: Uh, That's Morgan Bullock from Virginia, yeah. Morgan Bullock, there you are. Morgan Bullock is her name, and she's a brilliant Irish dancer, brilliant competitive dancer as well, which is not obvious, on all her TikTok videos, but um, she has had great success competitively as well as um, through social media. And I know for a fact she's been invited on so many different like um, Irish events, Zoom events mostly, in the last year. And uh, it's been amazing to see the success that she has had um, as a person who wouldn't look, obviously, to be Irish and isn't Irish. But, um, you know, it's amazing that um, she has... Achieved great notoriety for the art form, in addition to for herself, and fair to her.
0: And are you getting a ripple effect then? Uh, people coming to you, non-Irish, non-non-connectivity non-con- at all. I think you alluded to it to a certain degree. Are you getting? Yeah. Are you getting well, a, a fallout from yeah. that?
1: Over the years, we've had a lot of um dancers from different communities, and I remember back in the late nineties, NPR did a, a radio um, show. I just them. just
0: explain <laughs> for those who don't know, NPR's National Public Radio, it's Public similar radio. to RTE uh, and BBC in, in terms of, of these yeah. islands, as it were.
1: And they did a feature on um, a class I had in Jackson Heights, Queens, which I believe was at the time the second most multicultural neighbourhood in the world. And the most multicultural neighbourhood was Elmhurst, which is kind of next door in Queens also. And we had dancers in the class from um, Korea, and from we'd African Americans as well, and we'd dancers from like Eastern Europe, and some, and we'd a number of dancers from South America, and they were interviewed on the radio, and some of them could barely speak English, but it was fascinating. And um, so I think there's been a lot of non-Irish, or not obviously Irish people doing Irish dancing since since before Riverdance there was a few, but since Riverdance there's been loads. And like so, Morgan Bullock is the latest of a long line, but I suppose the point about maybe. Morgan is that she is really good at it, whereas a lot of these other people were doing it on a more participatory level. But there's definitely been a lot of dancers and there's a young, um, you'd say, African-Irish dancer now, I think he's from Dundalk, who just won the All-Ireland Championships a couple of years ago. And so um, it's happening in Ireland as well, where there's people that you'd say on first glance wouldn't look like they're Irish dancers, but, like, first glance doesn't do it anymore, you know? Like, it's basically um, fascinating and amazing how... There's such great talent um, in Irish dancing from people who are from all different backgrounds. And a lot of them live in the United States of America, but there's plenty of them overseas as well.
0: And it's happening in, in in Gaelic games too, where where those who who are coming to Ireland as, as the the second uh, their second uh, land, as it were, who are now embracing that. And it's 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 a bit of a I don't want to use the word joke, but it's a bit amusing to start off with. But it's so beautiful to see that people yeah. want to embrace the culture that is already here, and not not trying to squeeze their own culture out of out of existence either.
1: Oh, absolutely. And yeah. no, I suppose you'd say like. As you, to use a kind of Irish phrase, it's kind of past remarkable when you see somebody who doesn't look at first glance, as I say, like they're Irish. But of course we've all had to expand our notion of what Irishness is and um, I was standing at a bar one day on St. Patrick's Day in New York City and this African-American girl was standing at the other corner of the bar and I said oh, happy St. Patrick's Day and I said to her, well, um, you're obviously not Irish and she said to me I could be. <laughs> I have never said you're obviously not Irish to anyone ever, person. ever, it's a ever. Terrible again. Thing to say. I remember
0: um, I remember <laughs> uh, I remember Nile getting a, a taxi ride from um, JFK. This is in the late seventies. Uh, the taxi driver was obviously African, African American, and uh, we two, my, my cousin and I, were talking in the back and, uh, obviously, talking between ourselves. Oh, you guys are Irish, he said. I said, Yeah, yeah, of course. I said. He said, So am I. So am I. Uh, my name is McIntyre, uh, <coughs> I couldn't, I couldn't deny him. And and the truth was, if we had checked his uh, American Irish roots, they were there because he'd come from, uh, from the literally from the slave owner down, um, who was the owner and either passed the name or perhaps was uh, the parental kind of start of a a generation or two or three or four
1: yeah absolutely and it's an eye-opening experience for for native irish to go anywhere in the world and to meet people and you find it especially in the united states people who say i'm irish and they don't sound irish they don't look irish but they are irish and you dare try telling them otherwise and like so you know the whole thing in when you're growing up in Ireland, the idea of being proud of where your grandparents are from, your grandparents are from the same place where your parents <laughs> are from, probably, and you're not f- from too far away yourself. So, like, you don't think of it like that. But obviously, a country like the United States, or you'd say anywhere where there has been a long history of, of immigration, and we're not talking about just people going back and forth to England, anywhere that there's been a long history of multiple, um, you'd say, immigrations. It's completely different to growing up in a monocultural society such as Ireland was until maybe what 30 years
0: ago absolutely absolutely you're in um new york you you you're there since 1996 and thereabouts you you you've learned not alone uh, much about the irish community a bit about the architecture you could probably build your own um i um uh, what do you call that big tower that's up there uh, the chrysler building perhaps That so maybe that's an oh. ambition or, or or the empire state who knows but uh, did you take or embrace much of the history of the irish say in manhattan and all those places
1: Oh well, I mean, I've learned a lot um, over time, and and clearly very respectful of all the groundwork that has been done um, by Irish people in terms of you know the different police and services and building work. Like you know, there's so many um, aspects of society that that Irish people have permeated, and so it's it's a fascinating story. Like there's other places where, um, you know, like in New Orleans, let's say, the Irish built the canals or something. But but in New York City, you could say there's Irish people involved in, like, you know, the early days of so many different, like, you know, facets of society, not just Irish organisations. And so it's, it's a very proud history, clearly, uh, to come over somewhere and discover that there have been millions of people here before you. What about this Irish
0: dancing, then? Is it going to be your life's work? Are you going to diverse into anything new? Are you going to take up more musician roles, as it were? Have you learned learned more than just the accordion,
1: for example? Well, um, you know, every so often somebody says to me, tell us again, how many instruments do you play? Oh, it's not just one, then. My answer is I play a few well. And the idea of owning loads of instruments and not being able to play any of them it's the kind of thing that you'd wake up in the middle of a nightmare. And so um, I never wanted to be that person. So I play the accordion, um, play the spoons, which some people might not regard as an instrument. That's a discussion for another day. And then I play a bit of bower on and I play the keyboards as well. And so, um, yeah, like I think that I have a very open mind in terms of where the music and the dancing and the architecture are going. And um, I have certain ideas about um, creating different revolutions around um, all aspects of what I do. And so, um, you know, we're never just thinking in a straight line. You have to kind of think about um, what you can do to expand people's minds in different directions. And so, yeah, I have a lot of ideas up my sleeve.
0: And uh, are you just going to keep them in your sleeve? You're not going to show us your sleeve there towards one or two of them?
1: Well, as the weather gets warmer... (laughs) <laughs> um, we'll be revealing more
0: what, what's the space as it were uh, we're going to come to your final choice of music in a second or two uh, fascinating to talk to you now, as I knew it was going to be uh, to to uh, to, to uh, the, the line of questions you just suddenly evaporate. oh I know what it was would you go back home the question I was asked more times than any others in the five and a half years I was yeah. in California are you going to stay here for the rest of your life I've no idea mrs because i i haven't uh, got to the end of my life
1: what, what, what's your answer to that question yeah, well i've been lucky that i've got to um make a lot of trips over the years three or four times a year in many cases and um since the pandemic obviously you can't be going back and forth unless you have two weeks either end to quarantine which most people don't and so um i'm hoping to go back maybe late summer fall whenever um it's safe to do so obviously but in terms of moving back like I never saw myself, I suppose, being over here for for as long as I've been, almost 25 years. But at the same time, like the fact that you can go back and forth to Ireland so much, um, I suppose it lessens the longing for moving back in the sense that I get to experience a little bit of Ireland every year for short periods of time. But I wouldn't rule out moving back, definitely. But um, I don't know whether maybe I'd like to be able to travel around and um you know, have a base here, a base there, and maybe a base somewhere else, you know. So I'm open to the idea of, um, you know, being back in Ireland for an extended period of time. But the idea of leaving in America, I don't know if I could ever do that. And I really think in this day and age, like, you know, you could be out in the middle of the ocean and um, you could be on the internet and you'd be grand. And I thought it was very funny when I was in Ireland now last year, there was an ad on the television and it was some remote island off Donegal that they were saying about bringing the high-speed internet. And this man was like, we need that connectivity. And I was laughing myself thinking, we'll just move to Dublin if you don't have the right (laughs) Wi-Fi or internet. But of course, that's not the way it is anymore. You can be anywhere in the world and um, you can have the best internet and you can be connected with everyone. So I think the, the answer to your question is that it doesn't matter where you live because it's more about the people you engage with and what you're doing. Fair answer,
0: fair answer. We'll put that down as a possibly maybe yes, no, who knows. (laughs) Which is just about right. Uh, Your final piece and choice of music, uh, which is Stockton's Wing, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, so I actually performed with Stockton's Wing in the 1980s in the Atrium and Trinity College. And I remember experiencing this moment that I'd seen on the television and I've heard on record since where they were playing the Mason's apron and they just had like, Fiddle, flute, banjo, and then there's a part where the drums and bass kick in, and then the whole place goes mad, and everyone goes wild when they hear the drums. You know, like that's but the the very clever way they did it, they played for like a couple of minutes or a minute and a half without any of that, so you were just listening to the pure music, and it was amazing. And so, I've always been a fan of Stockton Swing, and um, they were huge in the 80s, I would say, 70s and 80s in Ireland, and they had this like. Celtic rock phase where they brought in the drummer then they could rid of the drummer again but um, the Celtic rock phase is what most people remember and this song is definitely very left of field it was written by um, the late great Shay Healy who just passed away now recently uh, he would have been most famous for his Eurovision win where he wrote What's Another Year... Not No, it wasn't What's Another Year. Was it, it was, he wrote a song that Johnny Logan oh, you, you,
0: you're, you're absolutely right. You got the, the answer oh, right yeah, the first yeah. one. was it. Was, exactly. was that 1980 or 1981?
1: Was it, yeah. That uh, was it, so, one of the two. What's Another Year, as they yeah. used to say. That was the song, exactly. And so... Um, so Shea Healy wrote this song, um, Run for the Gold. For It was for Moscow 1980. And for years, like the Irish Olympic team would... Um, going to wherever the Olympics was full of hope and very often we come back with maybe a couple of medals or maybe nothing. And um, I was always thinking, you know, that's kind of sad that our best middle distance runners lose in the semifinal or whatever. And it was only years later I realised And when I was listening to some RTE news report and they were like, so-and-so finished seventh in the semifinal but they ran a personal best. And it was only then I realised it's not about like winning the Olympics. It's about going somewhere far away, keeping to your training regime in a different country, and then doing the best you've ever done. And so, like, you know, in terms of training my dancing students now, this was a huge moment. I was like, this is what we need to do. And this particular song, like, you know the song, I know, I know, I know, compared to that song, like, the, the guy only sings I know once. They ha- I actually counted. The phrase for the gold is sung about 50 times in this particular song and the title of it Run for the Gold I always thought it was about winning the gold medal and I've actually gone running to this song in Panama Beach Florida along the beach Panama City Beach and so um, it's a great song for running to but um, I think you need to play the whole thing because it starts off really slowly and then at the end of the song there's like a big reveal which I literally only realised yesterday it's not about winning gold at all No one sees the lone runner, striding across the hillside, against the new day dawning. He has run for his country, he has run
0: for the goal. just been listening to Run for the Gold, Stockton's Wing. Uh, and from that, the understanding and the explanation beforehand of uh, running for the gold isn't to win the gold medal. It's doing the best that you can. The exact same sentiments and circumstances that you suggested about yourself when you were dancing first and your dancers uh, today, that it's not about the winning. It's more than just the taking part. It's uh, seeking for the excellence. I think that's how you run your life, isn't it?
1: Well, we all do the best we can, right?
0: In, in the best of, of, of chances. been fascinating to talk to you, Niall. We'll probably talk for another hour. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. And, and uh, we look forward to uh, your sleeves being unrolled and some more uh, plans being unfurled.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Brilliant.
0: My guest on Irish Voices Conversations with the Irish Diaspora was Niall O'Leary, living and thriving in the city of New York. If you'd like to get in touch with Irish Voices, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle over there is at Irish Voices P-O-D-C. That's Irish Voices P-O-D-C. You can help support the podcast by going to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash Irish Voices P-O-D-C. Thanks for listening and please spread the word. I'm Donna McCone and this has been an Irish Voices production.